Do you suffer with chronic pain? Are you taking risky, over-the-counter, or prescription anti-inflammatory drugs? This is Dr. Ronald Hoppe with a better natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals, Liquid Turmeric Liposome Complex. Future Farm's liquid turmeric with liposomes and nanotechnology delivers maximum absorption for effective pain relief. Sourced and manufactured in the United States, this product contains 1,600 milligrams of curcumin and powerful antioxidant properties. This plant-based curcumin is used to possibly reduce inflammation, block proteins that trigger swelling, and intercept inflammatory pathways, significantly decreasing inflammatory responses. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's future P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Don't live with pain when there's an all-natural, science-based remedy that works. myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to talk about functional neurology. You know, you've heard about functional medicine, that means taking a functional system-wide approach uh, to health problems the way we do on Intelligent Medicine. Uh, We're going to talk to one of America's preeminent integrative neurologists. He's Dr. Ken Charlin. He's a graduate of Emory University School of Medicine. He trained at Vanderbilt Medical School, and he's author of The Healthy Brain Toolbox, Neurologist Proven Strategies to Avoid Memory Loss and Protect Your Aging Brain. Uh, he has a neurology clinic. Uh, it's the uh, it's called Charlin Health and Neurology. It's in Ozark, Missouri. I guess that's, uh, Ken, that's near Springfield, Missouri. Is that correct? It is. Okay. And uh, so... Without further ado, let's uh, dive into functional neurology. So, f- first of all, uh, give us a, a definition of, of that. What does that mean to you? Well, thank you for having me on the show, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. To answer your question, what it means to me very simply is this. I have been a neurologist for over 20 years worked with people with multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, migraine, Lou Gehrig's disease, and so forth. But for most of those years, for many of those years, I treated those individuals exactly like any neurologist would, primarily focusing on diagnosis and a drug, and sometimes surgery. If that person needs it, I would refer them to a surgeon. When I became aware that we could reframe our thinking about disease to start to talk about root causes, my approach to neurology changed. So now I can take my skills as a diagnostician, as somebody who understands what happens when you have these big name diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, and so forth, How and I can integrate a root cause approach. So I always say my toolbox got bigger when I went into functional medicine, I didn't change toolboxes. I added to it. And, you know, as a neurologist, uh, this is a field where we have great precision uh, in slicing and dicing and diagnosing. Uh, but with many conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis, so we, we have therapies, but the therapies uh, often fall short. 
uh, of delivering cures, uh, we can ameliorate those conditions. So uh, I imagine it's uh, exciting for you to embark on a slightly different pathway where, you know, the medications are available to you, but you also use uh, more uh, lifestyle-based approaches in, in addressing problems. Absolutely. You know, this the, perhaps the best example is with Alzheimer's disease because we're still using drugs that, you know, were around 25 years ago, some of them, you know, denepazil. And there's some recent... You know, it was a common, is the, uh, the brand name for that. Brand yeah. name. As you may, may know, there's some recent evidence that suggests that longer-term use of these drugs, both denepazil or similar drugs and memantine, uh, may actually result in a worsening of the course of the disease in the mm-hmm. long run, rather, although there may be some short-term improvement associated with them. Um, so that's especially problematic. Let's say there's been over $250 billion in uh, pharmaceutical um, money spent on failed clinical trials, uh, much the, to their chagrin, I'm sure. A lot of the companies uh, but, have, have actually uh, abandoned the search. They just say it's not cost-effective. They sunk so many dollars into research and development uh, with no effective returns that they've said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to back away from Alzheimer's research. Absolutely. It is really, really tragic for the millions of Americans suffering from Alzheimer's disease. But the, the good news is this. You and I both understand that in the triad of the things that contribute to disease, you know, lifestyle, environment, and genetics, that genetics plays a relatively small role in comparison to environment and lifestyle. And when we bring a microscope into that and we start to look at the factors within the, each of those categories, we can do a t- tremendous amount to change the trajectory of an illness, including Alzheimer's. So we have seen uh, dramatic improvements in our Alzheimer's patients, and many of them choose not to take the medicine uh, because of the fear that the medicine would make them worse and because the lifestyle and environmental medicine approaches are so effective. And now, as we were talking earlier before we started the podcast, we were able to integrate some genetic information as well. That's well, actually- Speaking of genetic information, there is this sort of gloom and doom gene that's associated with Alzheimer's disease, the so-called uh, Alzheimer's gene, APOE4. Uh, but recent research has shown that even patients with that bad gene that highly predisposes them to Alzheimer's uh, can uh, forestall their fate. Uh, if they do certain things. This is the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen, which is well known to both of us. We've interviewed him here on Intelligent Medicine. What do you mm-hmm. take away from that? I, I agree with you completely in what you just said. I think it's important to understand that many of us carry this APOE4 gene. Roughly 20 to 30 percent of the population has at least one copy of APOE4. It confers just one copy, confers approximately uh, three times the risk of developing Alzheimer's. If you have two copies, it could be 12 to 15 times the risk. And you might say, well, why would human beings evolve to carry this gene? Why would they pass on this gene? Why would we, you know, you, there should be some sort of evolutionary selection whereby the gene clearly has no advantage for survival, or you might say that, and therefore, um, eventually, that gene would disappear from the human population. Um, but in fact, 
from a much bigger perspective, and this is certainly drawing on the work of Dale Bredesen, we know that the gene actually plays a pretty powerful role in its ability to respond to inflammatory signals in the environment. Mm -hmm. So if we only lived 30 or 40 years, as many of our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have typically lived, uh, and they happen to carry an APOE4 gene, um, that it may actually have conferred greater survival within the shorter lifespan uh, and therefore the ability to reproduce and perpetuate our species, as it were. So in the short run, uh, perhaps a genetic advantage, but in the long run, recognizing that inflammation is the big trigger for APOE4, we must become inflammologists, right? We have to be aware of what those inflammatory triggers are in order to mitigate the impact of APOE4 on our brains and on our lives. And apropos of our prehistoric history, uh, you have sometimes been dubbed the functional neurologist, I'm sorry, the paleoneurologist. You're already a functional neurologist, we'll give you that, but uh, how is it that uh, a paleo approach fits into your paradigm? Well, I appreciate that. I haven't heard that that term referred <laughs> referred to me, but I'll take it. That's fine. I think it's just more of a recognition that, you know, let me put it this way. I always say that functional medicine would not have existed had it not been for the, you know, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. It's just that, you know, we've changed our environment so dramatically. You know, and the fact that I can sit in a artificially lit air conditioned room and talk to you on a computer with, you know, electromagnetic fields emanating, you know, in the atmosphere all around me um, can have a tremendous impact on my own biology. So to me, more or less paleo means a recognition that, you know, our, our lifestyle has changed far faster than our genes, if you will, and there's sort of a mismatch between lifestyle and environment and our genes. And so this, you know, some of the grassroots things that we talk about a lot, like eating real food, farm to table, natural movement, going to sleep, you know, with the rhythms of the planet and the sun, so to speak, you know, uh, avoiding blue light at, at night. That, that's just returning to a more of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle that is less encumbered by these more current advances that potentially put us at risk for some of these chronic diseases. Well, it seems that we're in the midst of an epidemic of neurodegenerative diseases, and some people push back and say, oh, that's just because people are living longer. We're, we're outlasting our brains. We weren't designed to, to live that long. Uh, but others point out that uh, uh, in previous times, uh, there was less in the way of neurodegenerative conditions. There were individuals who became nonagenarians and centenarians and uh, maintained uh, their critical faculties pretty well. And, and now we're seeing... Unfortunately, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s uh, with devastating neurological conditions. Yeah. I mean, just today I saw one patient with high lead levels, another patient with high mercury levels. I mean, these are environmental factors that are playing a role. And one person had Alzheimer's, the other person had Parkinson's disease with high mercury levels. So, I mean, we're, we're living long enough that these things do, in fact, impact our health. Um, 
But, you know, there are all kinds of things. I've been very interested in uh, some of the mechanisms that underlie aging and all of this excitement over the fasting-mimicking diet and Walter Longo's work and really the work of the people that preceded him uh, in the area of understanding this combination of calorie restriction with nutrient with but while still maintaining nutrient density and the the take home in in the context of what we're discussing is the fact that if we have food availability all of the time what is the likelihood that we're ever going to give our bodies a break mm-hmm. right we don't tend to naturally calorie restrict and ironically we don't not only do we not calorie restrict but despite the fact that we tend to eat excess calories, which has a huge impact on these aging pathways, we tend to eat a, a diet that is that is deficient of, of nutrients in general. So and, and the commercialization of fast food is, is very much around the theme of snacking and, yes. uh, you know, continuous eating and having a bite in between uh, traditional mealtimes and late at night, which can be pretty devastating. Yeah. So I think these are major factors why we see these chronic diseases in our in our 21st century. I don't think it's one thing, but I think it's many things. And of course, there's the effect of uh, chemicals. Uh, I I recollect uh, one patient that I saw, and I was really puzzled by the, just a very uh, complicated array of neurologic problems she had. She had what was called atypical Parkinson's disease. You as a neurologist know that, I mean, there are certain characteristic patterns for Parkinson's disease, but she had more pervasive problems, and she had also some degree of dementia. It was really unclear what was going on with her, and I spent about an hour with her uh, before I glanced at her questionnaire, and I noticed that she lived on 22 Golf Lane, and I asked ah. the husband, the husband was mostly relating history because the woman was really non-compass menti, couldn't communicate. And I said, do you live adjacent to or on a golf course? And he says, oh, yes, it was our fondest dream to retire to a, a golf community. And, mm. oh, I said, how pristine are the grasses? Oh, beautiful. They're green all year round down here in Florida, even in the blasting heat. And I thought, oh, my goodness gracious. Absolutely. So will you do some testing on her then uh, to look at her levels of different pollutants? Indeed. Yeah, he was just loaded with uh, various types of uh, herbicide residues and, you know, pretty, pretty devastating stuff. Well, that's a great pickup, and it's a fine example of addressing things at the root cause level, you know. Indeed. So you've also done uh, a lot of work with uh, Dr. Terry Walls, who's been a pioneer in addressing MS, and she is known uh, for the dramatic resolution of her own uh, MS problem. She's a physician. For those who are unfamiliar with Terry Walls, many in the MS community by now are very familiar with her. But she's a physician who was just devastated by MS, tried many drugs. She was conventionally trained, so she believed in that uh, approach, Uh, got no results, progressed uh, to the point where she was disabled uh, in a wheelchair. Uh, and then she went towards a more natural paradigm, and she uh, has undergone a, a dramatic transformation. She's passing the word along to other MS uh, sufferers. So you've actually worked uh, hand-in-hand with her on some occasions, correct? Yes, I met Terry, uh, Dr. Walls, several years ago. We, I 
of course, wanted very much to meet her as a neurologist. But we found that we had a lot of common interest. Our personalities sort of jibed. Our philosophy about functional medicine uh, is virtually identical. So we've become very good friends over the years and, and stayed connected. I've had the honor of uh, working on uh, a paper with her. I've spoken every year at her annual seminar. It's coming up just in a couple of weeks. I'll be there. Um, but she's, you know, she's just been a wonderful support. And uh, we always have, you know, we share articles. I'll send her something that I know she would be interested in and vice versa. So um, it's been very good to have a relationship with her and to to learn and to have somebody to exchange ideas and continue to grow in, in understanding and what we can offer our patients in regard to functional medicine. What are some of the most important strategies for addressing uh, MS? Uh, you know, probably a, a myriad of them, uh, starting with the most fundamental <clears throat> lifestyle changes, diet, sleep, exercise. Uh, but are there any uh, special strategies that really seem to go to the heart of that problem? You know, for me, I tend to view the approach not so much from the specific disease perspective. But the patient who as, has the disease. As the patient who has the disease. Now, of course, there are some things, for example, um, you know, in general, there is very much an interest in the role that infection plays in some some of these different neurological conditions. Our virus in the case of MS, right. there's some good work yes. on that. Yes. So we have EBV in the case of MS, and you have herpes simplex virus, say, in the case of Alzheimer's disease. And there are other other infectious agents that are associated with both of those conditions. But Even, even periodontal that, disease most recently yes. in regard to Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Uh, P. gingivalis is thought to yes. be a culprit in Alzheimer's. Yes. Uh, in some cases, the Lyme uh, bug, Borrelia burgdorferi. Yep. Uh, and in the case of MS, uh, you have things even like chlamydia pneumoniae uh, has been associated with MS that came out of uh, Sriram's lab at Vanderbilt many years ago. Um, so some interesting roles that infectious agents may play as triggers for they, these. They just turn on the autoimmune reaction. Mm -hmm. Yes. And of course, uh, the tremendous interest in the, in the gut-brain connection. Of course, uh, those of us interested in functional medicine have talked about gut permeability for years, probably are, are sort of chuckling, um, you know, silently to ourselves as the mainstream uh, medical community is now embracing increased permeability and, you know, the gut-brain connection. And we've been saying, we've been saying, and, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, you know, this is now very clearly important in multiple sclerosis. Um, there appears to be some unique patterns that are seen in some patients in terms of the gut microbiome that make them more susceptible to having MS. But, but it's the same kind, you know, in the end it is. You're treating the patient, so you have to heal the gut. You have to make sure that nutrient balance is present that includes your, you know, inflammatory and anti-inflammatory fatty acids. Um, you you have to remove the toxins, you know, you have to balance the hormones. So all of those are factors when it comes to healing the brain in an MS patient. You know, a lot of people have uh, elevated the, the vegetarian or the vegan paradigm as a pathway to, to health. But when it comes to neurology, and certainly, you know, looking at the works of folks like uh, Terry Walls, 
they kind of take the opposite approach. There's more interest in nose-to-tail eating, a sort of carnivore diet, uh, ketogenic approaches. Uh, where do you stand on that? Yeah, you know, I really like, uh, I think it was Mark Hyman who coined the term pegan a couple of years ago. Uh, and I think Terry is very much on board with that. I think most of us prefer a um, plant-based diet that is still omnivorous, that includes moderate protein intake, that's well-sourced animal protein, uh, healthy fats, of course, lots of omega-3 fatty acids, um, monounsaturated fats, as you would find in avocados and uh, of course, some saturated fat, but not excessively so, at least in some of those Alzheimer's patients where there's still a question. But, but of not the cholesterol safety. as the culprit. That's no longer in vogue, is it? Well, not in the sense that we want to put people on statins and lower their cholesterol, but I think since we talk about things like particle size, and we're really understanding cholesterol more in terms of inflammation and oxidative stress. So rather than, say, demonize cholesterol, we want to recognize what are the drivers of inflammation, what are the drivers of what we call oxidative stress, mm -hmm. and understand that cholesterol particles are very susceptible to that. And so if you have a very high, uh, what they call LDLP, or uh, particle, uh, small dense LDL, then you're going to need to investigate what's driving that and improve that profile as an overall measure of of, of the inflammatory milieu that is your body, right? Um, so that's the way I would I would tend to look at it. But does cholesterol influence the, uh, you know, we get into the science of, of understanding Alzheimer's disease and this plaque that builds up in the brain called amyloid. Well, cholesterol does influence the, the cleavage or cutting of the precursor protein into the beta amyloid plaque. So while it's not bad, it's just important to understand where it does sit, and we shouldn't ignore the role of inflammation and oxidative stress and its influence on cholesterol. Indeed. All right, well, good. We, you've laid the groundwork uh, for a discussion in part two. We've got lots more to talk about. We're going to focus on uh, some of the things that you're doing now. You're uh, undertaking, from what I understand, uh, some clinical trials. Also, uh, we'll focus on your favorite supplements, news that our intelligent medicine listeners can use. That's why they tune in. Our guest is Dr. Ken Sharlin. He's author of The Healthy Brain Toolbox. The subtitle is Neurologist Proven Strategies to Avoid Memory Loss and Protect Your Aging Brain. And we all use a dose of that. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.